We are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Royal Grammar School on Guildford High Street, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. It's the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Thank you so much, Lydia. Um, yeah, give me a round of applause. Um, let me just pray for us one more time um, before we look at this. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the servants and ministers of your word, people like Paul and Timothy, who were so passionate about sharing you and sharing the gospel with the church and lord i just pray that as we read these words to a different church that we would be moved that um, we would be changed that we would see how we can live for you better in our own lives amen amen um i want to start with a question like classic preach style um but i want to start with the question of have you ever received a present for christmas or a birthday that you knew was expensive but that you just never used I imagine for most of you, the answer is probably yes. Maybe it was a named brand jumper that just didn't quite suit you, or a fancy piece of tech that you never worked out how to use. Now, 
Imagine a scenario where you're the one buying the gift. Let's say you've bought concert tickets for a friend. Um, I'm going to go with Harry Styles for the concert in this scenario, given that he's one of the biggest artists on the planet right now. So for those who aren't massively familiar with Harry Styles or concerts, bear in mind the current pricing for tickets to see Harry Styles at Wembley Stadium range from £70 to £400. And the demand for them is pretty high. You were sat there, you've fought off thousands of young adults in online queues for this. You've been sat at your laptop since 5am, wallet at the side, ready to go. And after all this considerable effort, you give the gift to the person in question. And of course, they're super excited, they're really happy, they thank you for it. And they even give you a big hug. But the concert then rolls around and they decide not to go. They aren't any less of a fan of Harry Styles. They fully recognise how much the gift cost, but they figure, ah, it's too much effort to get there. I think I'll just stay at home. You'd be confused, right? I imagine you'd be pretty angry even. You'd be calling them up saying, look, this is maybe the best present you could have got. You'd be a fool to waste it. You'd be doing everything in your power to urge them to make the most of this gift. And it's in that state that we find Paul at the start of chapter 6, as he pleads with the Corinthian church to not receive the gift of God's grace in vain. The Greek word that's used here is kenos, which literally translates to empty. It's been received as an empty gift. Paul wants them to know that the grace of God is the best possible gift you could receive and it should be received well and used wisely and he wants them to know it now he urges of course Paul isn't the one to have given that gift of salvation himself or to these people but he knows he, he does know that it's God alone who saves but he also recognizes his identity and part in the giving of this gift in verse 1, he refers to himself and Timothy as God's fellow workers. This follows on from what he's already told us in the previous chapter, in which he refers to them as Christ's ambassadors. In fact, we learned a lot about their identity in Christ in the last chapter, which Stuart preached to us on a couple of weeks ago. We learned that they were reconciled to God, that they were compelled by Christ's love to live for him, they were made new creations through Christ, that they were promised an eternal house in heaven, which they wait for now, with the Holy Spirit given as a deposit, a guarantee of what's to come. Paul wasn't just speaking of himself and Timothy in all this, but sharing something of the identity of all those who have a faith in Jesus. That's not to say that Paul hasn't done a fair share of talking about himself in this letter. In fact, the last five chapters have mostly consisted of Paul's testimony, using it as a means to encourage the church in Corinth. However, as I've already said, this chapter marks a turning point in the letter. It's from here on out that we see Paul start to move away from just sharing his testimony and instead offer some direct appeals and challenges to these believers. And his first big appeal in this chapter is this one. We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. 
we're going to spend some time this morning looking at what, what Paul tells the Corinthians as he makes this plea with them and what we as a church today can learn from this. Um, I'll probably jump around the chapter quite a bit, so if you've got a Bible in front of you, it's worth keeping it open. I forgot to say before, if anyone wants Bibles, I'm always bad at remembering, even though I wrote a note here to remember. Um, but if anyone would like a physical Bible who hasn't got one, do stick your hand up and one can make its way to you. Oh, I think we're all good. Great. Um, cool. So... The first thing I think we can learn from Paul is that to receive God's grace rightly is to recognise struggle, but to also recognise God's control. Because that's what Paul does here in this chapter and has done throughout this book. Paul recognises that he will struggle, but he also recognises that God remains in control. I've mentioned already how much of this letter so far has been Paul offering testimonies, a CV worth of stories that prove why he, and subsequently the gospel, are worth listening to. And the start of this chapter is no different. In verses 3 to 10, we see Paul detail his experience of being an ambassador of Christ and use it as a commendation of the gospel. In all honesty, it's not the most pleasant of experiences. He talks of being servants of God, visibly living for the Lord, in endurance, in troubles, in hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. And it's not the first time in this letter, by any means, that he's addressed just how hard this life is, and his life has been serving the Lord. In chapter 4, in that classic passage about being jars of clay, he talks about being hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. In chapter 5, we hear him talk of the groaning and longing and yearning that comes in this life as we patiently wait for the next. Obedience to Christ in response to his grace inevitably comes with persecution and trials. However, there is a duality because in both those verses I referenced from chapter 4 and here in chapter 6, we see that although Paul says we are all these things, there is always a but. Hard-pressed, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair, and so on. In this passage, it's similar. Verses 8 to 10 offer us another handful of pairings that Paul and those who, Paul says that all who know Jesus are uh, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. This duality, these buts and the and yet, uh, come from the fact that Paul knows that God is still faithful, God is still good, and he's still in control in the midst of all these difficulties. And how do we know that Paul believes that? Well, we know this from the scripture he chooses to quote to the Corinthians. Verse 2 of this chapter comes from Isaiah 49, and here Paul uses it to remind the church of two things. God hears and God saves. 
And Paul emphasises that now is the time of God's favour and the day of salvation in the verse that Stuart read to us earlier as well. He's saying that what God said through Isaiah is still relevant to them in the here and now. And considering that the Corinthian church was made up of both Jews and Gentile converts, there is real significance in Paul highlighting that these promises still stand, especially as he goes on in the passage in verses 16 to 18 to share other promises that God gave his people throughout the Old Testament. To say that now is the time of God's favour shows that the church, regardless of their heritage, are being treated as God's people and inheritors of those promises of Abraham. When reminding them of these promises, Paul says that they are from the Lord Almighty. And this word, Almighty, emphasises even more that Paul recognises God's sovereignty and wants the Corinthians to recognise it too. The translation from Greek of the word used here, which is a word only used twice in the New Testament, means the one whose hand is on everything. So Paul's testimony of his endurance through hardships is rooted in the fact that he believes in a God whose hand is on everything. To receive God's grace rightly is to keep going through the hard times, which are unlikely to be as tough as Paul's, by the way, um, trusting that God has had his hand on everything. Another thing we learn from Paul about receiving God's grace well comes in this same section of the passage. In verse 7, Paul refers to them commending themselves with weapons of righteousness. To receive God's grace rightly, the church must arm themselves with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. A few chapters on from this one, uh, in chapter 10, I hope this isn't a spoiler, uh, verse 3 to 4 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. To live the life Jesus wants us to, we have to be armed and ready, but not necessarily in the way the world expects us to be. The fact that it says that those weapons are both in the right and left hands is also significant because it shows that we need both offensive and defensive weapons to fight the good fight, armed with both sword and shield. So what are these weapons that we should be arming ourselves with as the church? Well, Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 6, purity, understanding, patience and kindness, the Holy Spirit and sincere love, truthful speech, the power of God. These are what we should be wearing as Christians to actively live a life that commends the gospel to others. These are the things which, due to their countercultural nature, will show something and help to others and help the church fight against their challenges. God has granted them and us his spirit and his power to help them live in obedience. These are fruits of the Spirit, traits that show something of the gospel message in them and serve as evidence of walking close to God. But Paul also calls them to something else. In verses 11 to 13, and um, he calls them to open their hearts. Because none of these fruits are attainable for the Corinthian church or for us without open hearts. Receiving the grace of God in vain is to accept salvation without being ready to live out these things, without being ready to be armed with these things. 
You cannot be a Christian who's received God's grace rightly unless you are responding to that gift of grace by seeking to grow in these areas. But while we can actively pray and work to grow in purity and understanding and kindness, Paul also offers the Corinthians a defensive weapon, a preventative measure to keep them in step with Christ and the gospel. And that's the harsh truth of his command in verse 14. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. And he follows this up with a series of questions, parallels highlighting the stark difference between believers and unbelievers. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. Uh, It's a phrase I'm sure many of us have heard. Uh, but maybe not actually in here, in this original context. In fact, I don't think I properly clocked until reading it this time round that this was how the phrase was initially used. Mainly because I've always heard it referenced in context of marriage and referring to marriage. And while I think it's a really great Christian principle to apply to marriage, uh, that's actually not what Paul is talking about here. He's addressing the whole of the Corinthian church, both married and unmarried, and he is giving them the same command to not be out, or as it says in some translations, to not be in incompatible relationships with unbelievers. Now, I think it's really important to note that this isn't Paul just telling them to cut off unbelievers. Um, It's not a template for the Corinthian church or for us today for how to generally interact with those who don't know Jesus. Um, We are called, after all, to be in the world, um, though not of it. Uh, Paul's use of language hints at that when he asks, what fellowship, or in some translation, what communion can light have with darkness? There's an intimacy in this word, fellowship or communion, and Paul using this word shows that what he really means here when he says don't be yoked isn't referring to the presence of unbelievers in our lives because that is both inevitable and encouraged. But what he is referring to is the influence of those people, of those voices. And we know this from things that Paul's already said in the letter. In chapter 5 he said, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. It's about what and who the church regards rather than who they see. There's something to be said for the fact that this command, which, again, I didn't really know until looking at it in context, is addressed to the whole church too. It's a collective command. It's a coll- yeah, it's a collective appeal to the body of Christ. And from the context of the letters and what we know of Corinthians and the Corinthian church, we know that the biggest problem for them as a church was listening to super apostles who were kind of false teachers who were more to build up their own name and their own gain rather than to build the gospel of Christ. And Paul is saying, don't align yourself with these people or their point of view. Do not be influenced by them. They are not the gospel. In fact, their message is the opposite to the light and righteousness and Christ. We, as the modern day church today, might not have the exact same issues, although I think it is very much an issue in the church today as well. But the question still remains, as the church collectively, whose voices are we listening to? Whose opinions are we aligning ourselves with? Because if the answer isn't Jesus and isn't scripture, then we've got some bigger problems than the ones that we may seemingly see in front of us. 
But whilst this is a command to a congregation, I do think there's plenty to learn from it and apply to our lives as individual followers of Christ. The word yoke, uh, for those who don't know, it's a farming term that refers to attaching two animals together to pull along a cart. And the reason Paul uses it is a reference to Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, which says this, Do not plough with an ox and donkey yoked together. It may seem confusing or irrelevant for those of us who've never worked on a farm, um, but there's distinct wisdom in it. Another way to look at it, which I think and hope more people will be able to relate to, uh, is for anyone who's done a three-legged race before. Um, So, you know, two people tied together in the middle and they have to run. Anybody who has ever done a three-legged race will know who you are tied to matters. For optimum speed and efficiency, and the least amount of tripping up, the person you want to be tied to is somebody who's a similar height to you. If they're a similar build to you, even better. If you're a short person tied to a really tall person trying to hobble your way to victory, it will be considerably harder as you won't be able to walk in step in the same way, especially if you've, one of you's got really little legs and one of you's got really long legs. But the same is true in our spiritual lives. Who we are tied to, who we walk in step with, matters. And to be honest with you, uh, when I got to this chapter and saw that it was the chapter I was preaching on, I wasn't sure if um, Stuart was having a joke with me or the Lord was having a joke with me. Because uh, this is something I've actually found really hard in my own life in the past year. Uh, for those who don't know what I do in the week of a day job, um, I'm a freelance journalist. Um, which in reality means half the week I'm a barista in a coffee shop. Um, But in that job, I've absolutely loved it. I've made some really great friends. Um, But everyone I work with is mostly under the age of 23. So the majority of my work friends are 20, 21. Um, Working with 20, 21-year-olds has its joys and its challenges. Let's just say that. Um, But I've loved it and I've made really good friends. but it's also been really hard because of the culture in the workplace I have and just the nature of being friends with people with, from a very different culture, people who like to go out every night and go drinking all the time, um, which isn't really me. But uh, as much as I've loved getting to know these people, and God has really blessed me in terms of I've had some really great conversations with them in the past year about Jesus, Actually, it's less likely that I'm having those conversations about Jesus than it is I'm getting dragged into drama and gossip and swearing or whatever it is people want to moan about in the day. It's easier to fall into that than to be like, right, I'm going to evangelise to you now, as much as I have had those opportunities as well. Um, It always weighs in one way. Because while there will always be joy and opportunity in relationships and friendships with unbelievers, they are always going to be more likely to influence you than you them, Um, as much as if you can think you have great self-control, like, great, but, like, I think it's always easier to fall than it is to climb. Um, I have no intention of cutting any of these friendships off. Um, I really love these people. They can't be the voices I let influence and uh, influence me and the voices I regard. When it comes to who I'm yoked with, who I'm walking alongside and in step with, it has to be Christ. It has to be the gospel. 
has to be Christians who will disciple us and challenge us as Paul does here, speaking freely and truthfully with an open heart. For anyone seeking to receive God's grace well and not in vain, that has to be the truth for you too. As hard as it is in this world. And yeah, if the church then needed to hear it, a church, like I said, in a culture very similar to ours, I think we need to as well. In verse 12, Paul talks of how they withhold their affections from him, or rather the gospel. But it's important to recognise it's not that they don't have affections, but it's that their love is guiding them towards the wrong thing. Where is our love guiding us? What is it directed towards? What are we letting it guide us towards? Not only are we called to just hear this command, but the weight of it and heeding it is also really clear. Um, Verse 17 contains a command that kind of conflates passages from Isaiah and Ezekiel that show the weight of being yoked with the world. Um, And it's a lot more than just joining in with the gossip every now and then. It tells us that in order to be received from God, we must touch no unclean thing. Intimacy with God demands separation from the unclean, worldly things. To not receive God's grace in vain, the church must look both individually and collectively at who is influencing them. And if it's not Jesus, if it's not scripture, something has to change. Um, I've mentioned already the Old Testament passage referenced in verse 17. And from what I've said, it probably seems that Paul is using this old scripture here in a very damning way. But actually, I want to quickly touch on those three passages that Paul uses in verse 16 to 18 to support his point. Because there's something really beautiful there. There is beauty in the fact that, as we've already said before, these passages are promises from God. And as kind of Stuart touched on, Dan sang when we sang yes and amen, like promises in God are made yes through him. They are fulfilled through him. And these are promises that are carried over from Israel into all those who choose to accept Jesus. And they're intimate, relational promises. It's God saying, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. It's of note as well that all three of these verses from their original context are in passages about worship and idolatry. Passages about God's relationship with his people. And that completely reframes all that we've read so far because it shows us the benefits of separating ourselves from the world. Because it shows us the benefits of worshipping the true God and knowing the true gospel rather than just being pulled along by other voices. These verses show us that to receive God's grace rightly and not in vain is to receive not only that grace but these promises from God to his people in our own lives. When we are armed with weapons of righteousness, we are living obediently under the promises of God. Terry Virgo, who preached to us last week from the Gospel of John, said that to be a Christian is walking with God every day, walking in his presence every day. And yeah, we see that here from everything we've seen in this chapter. That's what we know it looks like to receive God's grace well. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not going to stop at the end of chapter 6 because chapter 7 starts with a really important verse which I think helps us tie it all together. Uh, The theologian John Calvin once said, it is not enough to teach if you do not also urge. Um, And where Paul started this passage with a desperate plea to the Corinthian church, he ends it with another one. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. To receive God's grace rightly, we, the church, are called to purify ourselves and to perfect our holiness out of awe and reverence for God. But Paul starts this with a therefore, which tells us something important. And that's the fact that he has already given us all the reasons why it's worth doing this. And he's also given us the how to do it. It's because we have these promises, and it's in light of these promises, that we long to be sanctified and cleansed and made more like Jesus. It's because God has given us his grace through his death on the cross that we seek to live in response to it. Perfecting holiness through purity, understanding, kindness, patience and sincere love. So questions for you as we kind of draw to a close. What does that look like for you? What comes next? What does that therefore command of us today in our own lives? Well, I think it prompts us to remember God's promises. It also prompts us to do a health check on our relationships. Ask those hard questions of who you are letting influence you, whose voices are dictating your life. And most of all, it prompts us to return to our initial source of salvation, the grace of God, and revel and marvel in it. I'm going to spend some time praying for us, but I really want to like highlight the fact that I've kind of talked a lot about the fact that it is possible to receive God's grace in vain, but even if you have, that doesn't mean you're suddenly detached from God's grace. Um, he wants to renew it in your life, and he wants you to live in response to it every day. So if there are people this morning who do feel kind of far from God and feel that they need to recommit because they've been living in vain. I want to take the time to say to you that God wants you that. God wants to receive you. Um, and yeah, and feel free to come find me or Stuart at the end and we'll pray with you. Um, but let me just pray for all of us that we would know what it looks like to receive God's grace well um, and that we would see the fruits of it in our lives. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of grace. You were a God of mercy and salvation and love. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take that as an empty gift, but we would receive it willingly and ready to use it. May you make us people who are armed with weapons of righteousness to live for you. And on the days where it's harder to live for you, would you give us um, more of your spirit at work in us. May we know the joy it is to live for you. May you just be purifying and sanctifying each of us. I'm sorry, Father, for the times we've got it wrong and the times we turned away from you. But as we look back to you, may you just restore us and renew us with the joy and hope of your grace. Amen.
Thanks for listening. We meet on Sundays at 10am at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.